Exodus 33 is where we're going to be at this morning, Exodus 33 and chapter number 34. As you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. Would you settle for the blessings of God without the presence of God? Now, at first thought, you might wonder, Pastor Nick, is that even possible? Like, can we even do that? Can we experience the blessings of God without the presence of God? But as we're going to see at the beginning of Exodus chapter number 33, it is very possible. You see, as we've been seeing throughout this book, God is perfect. God is righteous. God is holy. Just like you or I, if we got too close to the sun, we would burn up. Nothing impure can stand in God's presence. The Bible describes God as a consuming fire. A few chapters earlier and a few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Josh took us through the tabernacle. and What did it look like to build this tabernacle? This was God's plan to dwell with his people so his presence could be with his people. But as we saw last week, now that the nation of Israel has fallen into idolatry, God's like, my presence can't go with you because my holiness will consume you. So it almost feels like the tabernacle plans have been canceled, like building project over. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to read the first few verses of Exodus 33 as we look at this morning, what is our greatest need in life? If you are physically able, I'd like to invite you to stand. As we read, we're going to read the first few verses of Exodus chapter number 33. The Bible says, the Lord spoke to Moses. Go up from here, you and the people you brought from the land of Egypt. I like how God tells Moses, you brought these people out. You get the sense that God's like, I'm just done with you guys. He tells Moses, go up from here, you and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your offspring. I will send an angel ahead of you and drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up with you because you are a stiff-necked people. Otherwise, I might destroy you on the way. Now, before we continue reading this morning, I want you to consider what's happening here. God is telling the people of Israel, look, I'll still give you the land. I'll, still, I'll send an angel. He'll clear it out for you. You guys can still have the land. You can still have the promise. You can still have the blessing. You can still experience my blessings, but you don't get me. And when we look at the nation of Israel's response in verse number four, we realize how dire of a situation this is. Verse four says, when the people heard this bad news, they mourned. And they didn't put on their jewelry. If you look that up in the Hebrew, it's, it's not like they just took it off. It's like this violent ripping off of their jewelry. It has the same idea as how they pillaged Egypt when they left. There's this bad news. There's this almost violent mourning. You see, the blessing of God without the presence of God really should mean nothing to the people of God. And what I hope to unpack this morning as we work through chapters 33 and 34 is that our greatest need is the presence of God. And I want us all to ask ourselves this question this morning. Where in my life am I settling for the gifts of God without the presence of God? Let's pray. Father, we love you. And Lord, I just want to thank you so much for your, your word that you've given us. Thank you that you've been able to allow us to gather here together this morning and online. And I pray, Lord, that as we hear your word preached and as we study your word together this morning, that your spirit would speak to us. Lord, the people listening today don't need to hear from me. They need to hear from you. And so I pray that you would just move me out of the way and that your spirit would speak to our hearts and show us where in our lives we're settling for the blessings that come with following you without actually your presence. We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Our first thought this morning as we begin jumping into our study 
is very simply the requirements for God's presence. As we just saw, God is holy and nothing unholy can go into his presence. And sometimes when we read these verses in the Old Testament, we almost think, man, God seems really intense. Like I've heard people say, I don't like God in the Old Testament. He just seems angry. He's just too intense all the time. But what I want to tell us this morning is God can't be anything less than what we see here in the Old Testament and still be holy. Nothing unholy can go into his presence. If God were to sacrifice his holiness, God would not be God and he would not be worthy of our worship. God can't be good and not be holy. And so what we see here is God is holy and that's actually a good thing. But because Israel had fallen into sin, God said, I can't go among you as you go into the promised land. You're a stiff-necked people. You're too stubborn. You're falling into idolatry right after you said you would follow me. My holiness will consume you so you guys can go into the land without me. Israel, they failed to meet the standard. They just committed to, meet, to, to following. And the bad news is none of us can meet that standard of God's holiness. I can't meet that standard of God's holiness. You can't meet that standard of God's holiness. The story of the people of God is we are not good enough. I mean, put that on a motivational poster, right? That'll fire you up in the morning. We're not good enough, right? The Bible tells us in Romans 3, as it's written, there's none righteous, not even one. Apart from Christ, every single one of us falls short of the glory of God. But fortunately, the good news is God did not leave us to suffer the fate of our sin. He makes a way for us to experience his presence through the forgiveness of our sin. Like we saw a few weeks ago, Christ meets the standard that the law demands so we can experience the presence of God. The requirement for God's presence in the Old Testament was holiness, and in the New Testament, it's still holiness. The requirement to experience God's presence hasn't changed. But for us, we know that Christ has met that standard. But just because Christ has met God's standard of holiness for us, doesn't mean we can just chuck holy living out the window. In 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul calls the church to get rid of immoral behavior. And when he does so, he actually calls back to elements that we see here in the book of Exodus. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6, Paul says, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The Apostle Paul is reminding us, hey, Christ is sacrificed. Christ has made us holy. Now what we want to do is we want to live holy lives that reflect the holiness that Jesus earned for us. Paul's basically saying in a nutshell, God made you holy, now it's time to live like it. Christ has made us holy so that we can enjoy the presence of God. And what we see here this morning is that holy living does not earn us the presence of God. Our holy living does not earn us the presence of God, but it does enable us to enjoy the presence of God. You see, sin will hinder your experience of God's presence, not because it makes God love you less. God's love for you was settled at the cross of Calvary. Us sinning doesn't make God love us less, but what it does is it makes us love God less. And it has ramifications that'll impact your life for years and years to come. In chapter 34, we're going to see how sin will, has, it has generational effects. The Bible says the sin of the father will visit the children, sometimes to the third and fourth generation. Sin has generational effects that will keep you from enjoying and experiencing the presence of God, and oftentimes it'll hinder the people in your life from experiencing the presence of God too. Now, there's going to be some of us, either in here or watching online this morning, and you don't need me to stand up here and warn you about the effects of sin because you've lived it. 
you've lived it, and you, you know what it's like, and to hear somebody warn against the consequences of sin, it, it feels like condemnation. What I want to ask you this morning is hang with me for a moment, because we're going to bring this full circle, but we have to sound the alarm against the danger of sin. Sin will wreck your life. Sin will keep you from experiencing the presence of God. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, even a little bit of sin has huge ramifications. This is why we cannot settle for a life without the presence of God. It's only a deep abiding relationship with Jesus where we are finding our full satisfaction in him that sin will lose its allure, that sin will lose its power over us because we are getting all the satisfaction we need in Christ. Don't make the mistake of settling for a life that just enjoys the good things God gives you without his presence. As great as those gifts are, as great as the benefits of being a member of Christ's family are, they're not going to satisfy the deep longings of your heart. They won't keep you from sin. If you keep reading the story of the children of Israel, you'll see this cycle get repeated almost throughout the entire Old Testament. God will bless them. They will experience prosperity And in that blessing, they will settle for the gifts of God and sacrifice the presence of God. And shortly after they forget God's presence, they fall into sin. And after they fall into sin, they suffer the results of their sin. They suffer the consequences of their sin. Then they have a come-to-God moment. They wake up, they come to their senses, and they cry out. They say, God, we need you. And then God answers, and God shows up with his presence. And then God blesses them again. And then what happens over time? They neglect his presence. That cycle gets repeated for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Don't settle for a life without the presence of God. It's the presence of God that'll satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. And as you experience that satisfaction, the allure of sin loses its power over you and it loses its hold over you because you recognize what it's promising, I don't need anymore because I'm getting everything I need from Christ by having this deep, personal, abiding relationship with him. Holy living does not earn us the presence of God but it does enable us to enjoy the presence of God. And if there's never been a moment where you place your faith and trust in Jesus, you're here today and you're like, I've never experienced the presence of God. I don't even know what it means to be a Christian. Let me encourage you today. The Bible says in Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're here with us this morning and you don't have that relationship, elbow the person next to you and say, hey, I need to know how I can have a deep abiding relationship with Jesus. I want to know what it means to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. If you're watching with us online, fill out our connection card at fresnochurch.com connect. Let us know, and I promise you by this afternoon, we will call you and show you how you can have that relationship with Jesus. If you are in Christ, let me encourage you to follow the example we see of Moses here in chapter 33. And ask God, God, I want to experience your presence. Leads us to our second thought this morning, the requesting of God's presence. Moses wasn't satisfied with just the gifts. Moses wasn't satisfied with just the land. He's like, no, no, God, we need more. Look at what he says in verse 13 of chapter 33. He says, now if I have indeed found favor with you, please teach me your ways and I will know you so that I might find favor with you. Now consider that this nation is your people. And he, God, replies, my presence will go with you. That's singular. God's telling Moses, look, I'll go with you, Moses. I will give you rest, Moses. I'll, I'll, I'll be with you, Moses, but not the people. But for Moses, that wasn't enough. Moses says, if your presence does not go, don't make us go up from here. How will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us? I and your people will be distinguished by this from all the other people on the face of the earth. 
Moses was begging God, look, we need a plural, all of us, your people need to experience your presence. Just the land isn't good enough, God. Just you being with me isn't good enough, God. We need you to go with us. Moses is basically asking, how can we be your people if your presence isn't with us? And how does God respond? I mean, this is a pretty audacious request of Moses. It almost feels like he's arguing with God, and how does God respond? Look at verse 17. The Lord answered Moses, I will do this very thing you have asked. God told Moses, I'll do it. I'll be with you. In his love and in his grace, God says his people can experience his presence. This wasn't based on how good they were. We've established that they weren't. This wasn't based on their worthiness, or this wasn't based on the fact that they got their act together. They hadn't. They had already established how short they fell. God, in his love and in his mercy and in his faithfulness, answers the prayer of Moses. Now, under the new covenant, all of us have equal access to God. For those of us that, have, that are in Christ, we've placed our faith and trust in Jesus. We have what the Bible tells us is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God now dwells inside each and every believer. But equal access does not always mean equal experience. I mean, all of us can think of somebody we know, and like we know it's theologically not true, but we, we're still kind of convinced, man, they got a special line to heaven. <laughs> equal access does not mean equal experience. And I have to believe, based on the promises of God, that the reason so many of us, particularly in, in Western culture, the reason our Christianity is so shallow, the reason our Christianity is so powerless, the reason we're so spiritually dry sometimes, I have to believe it's just because we're not asking. We're not desperate like Moses and the children of Israel. Because God's blessed us, hasn't he? We've got a lot of good things in our life. And there's not this desperation, there's not this hunger, there's not this gut-level need for the presence of God. Jesus gave us a great parable to help us understand this in Luke chapter number 11, verse 5. He says, suppose one of you has a friend. Anybody in here have a friend? Okay, I'm your friend, so everybody can raise your hand, all right? If you're online on Zoom, raise that digital hand, okay? Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight. That's a good friend. <laughs> and says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I don't have anything to offer him. Then he will answer from inside and say, don't bother me. That, that's probably how I'll respond if you come banging on my door at midnight. <laughs> the door is already locked, and my children and I have gone to bed. I can't get up to give you anything. I'll just say, I, I, I'm a parent. I've got four little kids at home. Those of you that are parents, you, you've been through the stage where bedtime is like fighting a world war. And when you get them to sleep, you're just like, peace at last. Imagine how you feel somebody at midnight comes pounding on your door. I'm like, buddy, do not wake up my children. But Jesus goes on. He, he gives us the point here. He says, I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he's his friend, like, this guy ain't going to answer your request because you guys are bosom buddies. Like, that's not why. He's just really annoyed at you. Jesus says, yeah, because of his friend's shameless bowling, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Because his friend had the audacity and begged him and had a need and was shameless about his need and about his asking, he gets what he wants. So Jesus brings home this illustration. He brings home this story. He says, so I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened unto you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. 
and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened unto you. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will he give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? Any dads in here this morning? Like, I'll be honest with you, I'm not the best dad in the world, but I've got that one pretty much nailed down. Like, when my kid comes up to me, he's like, Dad, I need some food. Oh, you want a banana? Yeah, here's a snake. Like, okay, I'm not a perfect dad, but I pretty much got that one nailed down. Jesus takes this application home. He says this, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? I mean, we like to quote, Seek and you shall find, ask and it shall be given unto you. The context of that is experiencing the presence of God. If I, as an imperfect dad, would never deprive my children and give them something poisonous, how much more will God, who's a perfect heavenly father, not give us his Holy Spirit? God promises to fill you with his spirit. But so oftentimes we're just not desperate because we've settled for the gifts of God without the presence of God. So Moses and the nation of Israel, we've seen the requirements for God's presence and thank God Christ has met that for us. We've seen the requesting of God's presence. And then in chapter number 34, we begin to see the return of God's presence. Like we said in verse 17, God said, I will do this very thing you have asked. And then throughout chapter number 34, God begins to reestablish the covenant that he just made a few chapters earlier. He just made this a hot minute ago. And now he's already beginning to reestablish it with his people. He's giving them a way they can continue to experience his presence, even though they fall short of God's standard. He gives them a way they can experience his presence. In uh, verse 5 of chapter 34, the Bible says, The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. We saw earlier, yes, sin has generational effects. But the good news is, the love and grace and mercy and forgiveness of God far outlasts any sin. Yes, sin will have its consequences for a few generations, but God says, my love, my grace, and my mercy will blow that out of the water. It'll be there for thousands and thousands of generations. Yes, sin is dangerous. Yes, it's destructive. Yes, we need to warn against it. But as much as we warn against it, even more, we should celebrate and proclaim the love and mercy of God because his love and mercy will cover any sin. And when God comes back, when we begin to re-experience God, he's coming because he is a good, faithful, loving, merciful, gracious God. And what's amazing about all this is Moses never promises, God, if you come back, I promise we'll get our act together this time. How many times do we pray that? Lord, if you just bless me, I promise I'll do better this time. But there is, there, there's no bartering with God. It's just unmerited love, unmerited favor, unmerited grace that he loves to pour out. This entire prayer of Moses was based on the favor and the glory and the goodness and the love of God. Because God is faithful and merciful, he reinstates his covenant that they had just broken. And there's three things I want to look at as God gives them a way to experience God. First of all, we see that this old covenant shaped their identity as God's people. In verse number 10, God says that he's going to perform wonders among them and the people of Israel are going to be unique among the entire nations of the world and what God's going to do is going to be awe-inspiring. 
This covenant was something that was unique. No other nation on earth had this covenant, this special relationship with God. And so this covenant shaped their identity. God's presence shaped their identity as God's people. But then in verses 11 through 17, we get a summed up version of the law again. And what we see is, while the old covenant shaped their identity as God's people, the law protected their identity as God's people. This was meant to protect them from falling into the idolatry of the nations around them. Like we saw a couple weeks ago, that was part of the purpose of the law. Yes, they could never fulfill it, and so it would keep them dependent on God. It would keep them in a heart posture of, we need the presence of God. We can't settle for anything less than the presence of God. And so it would protect their identity as God's people. For those of us under the new covenant, now we don't have the law anymore. We have the Holy Spirit of God who uses the word of God to protect us from falling into sin and ruining our lives. We have the Holy Spirit, the law, written on our hearts to fulfill that role for us. Then in verses 18 and 26 of chapter 34, God establishes several ceremonies and festivals. A lot of these were to be celebratory, and they were like parties. Some of them were more somber in nature, but the point of all of them was to remind them to reinforce something that God had already did for them. These festivals and ceremonies were a part of the rhythm of corporate worship in the life of Israel. And so we've seen how the covenant shaped their identity as God's people. The law protected their identity. And then we see corporate worship reinforces their identity as God's people. You see, corporate worship is the coming together of God's people to publicly declare that our allegiance is to Christ and Christ alone. Paul said in Colossians 3.16, to let the word of Christ dwell among you, that's plural, richly. How do we do that richly? He says, in all wisdom and teaching, like what we're doing right now, and like what we just did, admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The point of this is to regularly reinforce the word of Christ so that it can dwell richly in us, so that we can remind ourselves that we are the children of God, and no matter what's happening in our world, we're going to be safe, and we're going to be secure because we are God's children. I love the picture we get of this in Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, the psalmist, he's despairing at the prosperity of the wicked. Any of you ever been there before? <laughs> like you look around and it seems like all the people that hate God, that don't follow him, they're wicked and they're evil, they're prospering. The psalmist is in like this spiritual funk. He's in this spiritual haze and he's struggling and he has this despair of heart until Psalm 73 says he came to the tabernacle of God. Until he went into corporate worship. And it was there in corporate worship that he began to understand God's plan. That breakthrough, that spiritual haze lifted within the context of faith-filled corporate worship, which led the psalmist to say in Psalm 73, Who do I have in heaven but you? God, all I need is you. I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart, sure, they fail. But God, you're my strength of my heart and my portion forever. God, all I need is you. And that is enough to satisfy my heart. That spiritual breakthrough came in the context of faith-filled corporate worship. The people of God need faith-filled corporate worship to regularly reinforce their identity as God's people. And so we see God gives his people a way to continually experience his presence. And then lastly, we see the result of God's presence. Let's look at uh, verse 29 of chapter 34. The Bible says, As Moses descended from Mount Sinai, he had just been up in the presence of God. Got to see the glory of God from, God, God put him in the cleft of the rock, hid his hand over him, and let him see his back. 
got to see an amazing, like we look at that and we marvel. We're like, wow, that's so awesome. So Moses, he comes down from the mountain after this amazing experience with the two tablets of testimony in his hands as he descended the mountain. And the Bible says he did not realize that the skin of his face shone as a result of his speaking with the Lord. His face was literally radiating. You see, when we spend time in God's presence, we're changed. Moses spent time in the presence of the glory of God, and his face was literally radiating. Now, we read this passage, and we're blown away, right? Like, imagine being Moses, and God literally puts you in the cleft of a rock, literally covers you with his hand, and lets you see his back, lets you see this amazing glimpse of his glory. We read, we read that, and we're like, wow, that's amazing. Wow, that's glorious. And it is, and it's wonderful. But I'm going to again go back to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians this time, chapter number 3, verse number 7. Now, if the ministry that brought death chiseled in letters of stone, what does Paul mean by that? He's talking about the law. The law didn't save them. It just revealed their need for a Savior. If the ministry that brought death chiseled in letters of stone came with glory so that the Israelites were not able to gaze steadily at Moses' face because of its glory, which was set aside, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry that brought condemnation, the law had glory, and it did have glory. It was amazing. If that had glory, the ministry that brings righteousness overflows with even more glory. In fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it. Paul is saying, look, as amazing as what just happened to Moses was, as glorious as that was, it doesn't pale in comparison to what the Holy Spirit wants to do in you. The Holy Spirit bringing you authentic righteousness, the righteousness that's imputed to you because of what Christ did on the cross, the ministry of the Spirit in you, functionally changing you so that you can be more like Jesus, bringing to fruition that righteousness that has been given to you. What the Holy Spirit doing in you is more glorious, it's more amazing than what God did for Moses on the mountain. In fact, Paul says it's so much more amazing that this doesn't even really look like that much anymore. As amazing as that story was, what the Holy Spirit does in you, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, bringing about true and lasting righteousness, is even more amazing. And we receive this, we experience this through faith, recognizing this is an amazing gift that God has given us that we can never earn. And after Paul tells us how amazing the ministry of the Spirit in you is, he then tells us the change it makes us in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 15. Yet still today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, that veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The more time we spend in God's presence, the more we're going to look like Jesus the more he's going to change us, the more our lives will reflect the glory of God, the more time we spend in the word, faithfully reading the word, recognizing by faith that this is how God wants to talk to me. That when I read the Bible, that's the same experience as people sitting at the feet of Jesus. When we recognize that by faith and we spend time in his word and then we, by faith, spend time in prayer, recognizing I get to talk to God. (laughs) I get to walk straight into the holy of holies in heaven and have a conversation with the creator of the universe. When we by faith do that, when we by faith gather with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and reinforce who we are, the Holy Spirit will begin to transform us from the inside out.
The more we gaze at the glory of God in Jesus, the more we reflect the glory of God by living like Jesus. Now, this is where this all comes full circle. I know a lot of times you'll hear people talk about cycles of sin or cycles of shame, and those are very helpful. But I want to talk about a cycle that I think we all want to be on this morning. You see, the more time you spend with Jesus, the more satisfaction he's going to bring into your heart and life. He's going to meet needs that you've been trying to meet so many other ways. And as you find that satisfaction in Jesus, what's going to happen is you're going to start looking to other things for satisfaction less because you're getting those needs met. And as you look to sinful things less, what's going to happen is you're going to begin to crave righteousness and holiness more. And the more you begin to crave righteousness and holiness and the things of God, you're going to get more and more desperate for God, and then you're going to go spend more time with God, and the more time you spend with God, the more he's going to change you, the less sin's going to be appealing to you, the more you're going to live holy and righteously and godly in this present world, and the more we do that, the more room and margin we have in our lives to be wowed by God and to be experienced by God, so we spend more time. You see the cycle? God says, the more time you spend with me, the more I'm going to make you look like me. Charles Spurgeon, he said, the more of heaven there is in a life, in our lives, the less of earth we will covet. And this brings glory to God. See, sometimes we confuse the glory of God. The glory of God is just the display of his godness. It's the display of his worth, his beauty. Everything that makes God God being displayed, that's the glory of God. And when we live this type of life, when we live holy, faith-filled lives dependent on the Spirit of God, that puts on display the worth of God. That puts on display the supremacy of God. That puts on display the power of the Holy Spirit and our lives bring God glory. And all of this is made possible because his presence is with us. Church, our greatest need is the presence of God. So here's our takeaway for this morning. Abide in his presence and grow in his likeness. Don't just settle. Don't settle for the comforts of life without the presence of God. Abide in his presence and grow in his likeness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for making it possible for us to be in the presence of God. Lord, that's such an amazing gift. It should blow our minds. It should blow our hearts. And yet so oftentimes, as is the propensity of your people, we settle for so many lesser things. I pray that your Holy Spirit, Lord, would show us where in our hearts we're settling, convict us of where we are settling, and I pray that you would give us a holy dissatisfaction for where we are at and that we would crave you above all else. Lord, we love you. We ask this in your name. Amen.